You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. That's our Jesus, strong and kind. It's amazing that he loves us. And that in any situation, we can run to him. We thank you for that, Father. It's in his name we pray, amen. So last week, uh, we looked at the beginning of John 13. Remember, we talked about there was this transition between John 1 through 12 and John 13 through the rest of the book. In the beginning of John 13, we see that Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And in that act, we talked about the intense love and humility that Jesus demonstrated. And after Jesus had washed the feet of his disciples, he told them that their lives need to be marked by the same love, humility, and service if they are going to serve him. And if they serve others in the same love and humility, they will be blessed. That's a great start to the last few hours of Jesus' earthly ministry as he prepares the disciples for his departure. But John 13 takes a turn. After the foot washing, John highlights the betrayal of Judas. Now what do you think about when you think about betrayal? Well, This past week when I was thinking about betrayal, I started thinking about and doing some research on some of the biggest betrayals in history. Some of the biggest betrayals in history. And just so we're on the same page, betrayal happens when someone we thought was for us turns out to be against us. They play the part of a friend, a relative, a confidant, but they turn against us when it's convenient for them. So the first example I want to bring you to is in 1950, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested right, for selling information and recruiting spies for the Russians. They were giving away information about American security. Now they played the part of American citizens, but they betrayed the country. Another historical example of betrayal is so famous that it is immortalized in a Shakespearean play. Julius Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire, and he was not well liked. And there was a conspiracy with his senators to get rid of him. So they gathered together, and he was stabbed by his nephew in the back, Marcus Junius Brutus, prompting Julius Caesar to say the most famous line, Et tu, Brutus? And you, Brutus, you're the one to betray me? Though these are some well-known betrayals in history, there are many that we know that have felt the sting of betrayal. Losing a job or a promotion at work because someone took credit for your hard work. A friendship that is ruined over lies and deception. Families ripped apart because of infidelity. Betrayal is a reality among many of us. In fact, it is such a disease in the human psyche that even Jesus was affected by betrayal a friend and a follower who turned him over to the authorities for, what, some silver? A little bit of money. One of the things I want us to see this morning is that betrayal was not the end of the road for Jesus, though. He expected to be betrayed. He knew the reality of what was going to happen. The betrayal of Judas helped bring the glory of Jesus. So just as a quick reset to the scene so that we can really see what's happening, Jesus is having dinner with a close group of followers. This is the last night that they would dine together before he was crucified. He had just washed their feet, and it was time for Jesus to set expectations for what was going to happen. So he had washed their feet, and he was going to prepare them for what was going to happen. And we see this in John chapter 13, starting in verse 18. This is after Jesus tells them that anyone who follows me will do these things, and if they do these things, if they wash feet, they will be blessed. Verse 18 says this, I'm not speaking about all of you, I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. 
The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Verse 20, truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. The one who receives me receives him who sent me. Like much of the themes in John's gospel, this little section right here, these three verses, hinge on the understanding of belief and unbelief. We have talked a lot about that through this series. And if we remember, the whole reason that John writes his gospel is told to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that, that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John writes his gospel so that people will believe. So naturally, what he's going to do is he's going to point out and report situations in people that both believe and those who don't believe. And Jesus tells his disciple to love like he does, to have humility like he does, and that those who do will exhibit the qualities of his disciples. Right? That's verse 18. But not all of those who are with him were for him. Jesus had chosen this group of 12 people, these 12 men to follow him around, to learn from him, He had chosen each one of these men to serve a particular purpose in his life and ministry, and even the ministry beyond his life. Let's not look past that. Jesus knew how each one of these men were going to treat him. Each one of these men chosen by Jesus were chosen for a purpose, a purpose. And the purpose by which he chose them, and specifically Judas, was so that the scripture would be fulfilled, that God's word would come to pass, that the promises that God had made to his people would find their fulfillment in the culmination of Jesus. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 41:19, The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Now Psalm 41 is a psalm of David. After you felt the sting of betrayal. We see a theme going on here, right? After one of his closest friends had turned on him. David is lamenting about the betrayal. He is crying out to God for comfort and also in the rest of the psalm, vengeance. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. So he quotes a psalm that would have been known by his followers as a psalm about betrayal, to speak to the betrayal that he's going to hear. The psalm is complex and it talks about both the intimacy of the offender and the disgrace brought about by the offender. The one who eats my bread is a picture of one that is close someone who regularly shares a meal with you. Most people don't regularly invite strangers into their home, but we do invite friends and family and those we have a relationship with. The one who betrays Jesus has developed a relationship with him. He has spent three years with him. He is a friend of Jesus, but he's going to raise his heel against Jesus. That phrase is an also interesting phrase that is attributed to a horse or a donkey going to kick someone. They're raising their heel against them. Not only that, but at this time in culture, in, in this place in culture, raising your heel, you would never show your feet to somebody. When you showed your feet or raised your heel to somebody, it was extremely insulting and dishonoring to the person that you were showing it to. So for a friend that was closer than a brother, Judas, to raise their heel against Jesus would be one of the ultimate acts of dishonor. We're going to see that the one that has been around Jesus has shared bread with him, now betrays him. And why does he betray him? Because he does not believe in Jesus. 
he is wrapped up in his unbelief. But Jesus wants to help those who do believe. And that's why he tells them that what's going to happen, that he is going to be betrayed by someone close to him. He wants them to know that he isn't surprised about the turn of events. And going a little further, his prediction is going to help them solidify their understanding of who he is, that he is God-made flesh. It's going to help them to see that he is truly God in the flesh. That's what he means in verse 19 when he says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Then he tells his disciples this, Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives the one who sent, sent me. He is now marking out those who believe, those original 11, that they are sent out by Jesus, and that, if, and that they believe what they teach to, about Jesus. And if those people who hear the teachings of the, of the disciples believe, then they receive Jesus. This is a building upon what Jesus had said previously. You see, previously he said that if they believe in the Son, be in Jesus, then they will be accepted by the Father. If they honor the Son, they will be honored by the Father because he is sent by the Father, right? Now he's sending the disciples. And if people accept the message of the disciples, then they accept Jesus and they will be accepted by the Father. There's this threefold acceptance. If you accept the disciples, then you accept Jesus. And if you accept Jesus, then you are accepted by the Father. As followers of Jesus, all of us have been called to a relationship with Jesus so that we can be sent out and be a blessing to the world. As Jesus calls us, he also sends us out. Sends us out to tell others about Jesus. Sends us out to do kingdom work, to spread the gospel, to spread the good news about Jesus. Those that accept you as you are sent out accept Jesus and then are accepted by the Father. But the reverse is also true. If they reject you in the message that you bring, then they reject Jesus and they are in turn rejected by the Father. So if they accept the message that you bring, they really are accepting Jesus. But if they reject you, they aren't rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. They don't want to have a life with him. They don't want to be a part of him. So don't get discouraged when you talk about Jesus and put people push you aside or they ignore the message. They aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting him. Also, don't get overly confident if you have a streak where people love the message of the gospel and they believe. You're simply the messenger. It may feel like they're accepting or rejecting you, but they're not. They're accepting or rejecting Jesus. They're either believing in Jesus or continuing in their unbelief. Now, as Jesus is instructing his disciples about their calling to be sent to go out into the world, he gets upset. It's interesting. There's a big shift here. He gets upset and troubled because the time for his betrayal has, is, has begun. So in verse 21, we see this. When Jesus has said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? So Jesus makes this announcement, another announcement about the betrayal. And I love the authenticity with which John speaks about Jesus's attitude and his heart. He tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. This word troubled in spirit is the same way that he felt on his way to see Lazarus, that he was troubled. It's also the same way he felt when his hour had finally come in John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus is disturbed and troubled about what must take place. 
He's feeling the anguish and the reality about what is going to happen. This is his Gethsemane moment in John's gospel. This turmoil within his soul that this is, this is taking place right now. Especially when he spoke these words, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One of you that I have trusted. One of you that has eaten my food. One of you that has become a family to me is going to betray me. And notice that all the disciples are confused. They are looking, all looking at one another, dumbfounded by what they just heard. Mark tells us that they, Mark tells us that they start saying to us, surely not I. They didn't know who would be the betrayer. Each one thought that they could be the one to betray Jesus. They didn't know at this time that Judas was the one who would turn Jesus over. It's not like Jesus says this, one of you will betray me, and then 11 heads turn to Judas. They had no idea. Judas was a trusted and loved friend. He played the good part. He blended in well. So they're confused because they don't know who it's going to be. Which is interesting because Jesus already told them that somebody was going to betray him. And even after hearing it multiple times, they still don't get it. Sometimes people can be thick-headed. That's an understatement, isn't it? Some people just don't actually listen, right? But in the confusion, Peter looks over at John, or the one that Jesus loved, and was like, figure out what's going on. Now, I want to talk about this uh, phrase, the one that Jesus loved, for just a minute. It's an interesting phrase that makes its debut here in John's gospel, but shows up later in the gospel as well. I was part of a Bible study that we, we were going through the book of John, and when we came to this phrase, people were confused by it. Why does, why does it say he's the one that Jesus loved? Doesn't Jesus love all his disciples? I mean, John 13, 1 tells us that he loved them to the very end. Now, this is a self-identifier for the author of the gospel, John. He doesn't write it in to put the other disciples down or like he was more special than anyone else. He wasn't trying to set himself apart as more loved. It's more like this. He was shocked. He was in awe that the creator of the universe loved him. It's like he was saying, I am loved by the one who created all things. How can he love me? Why does he love me? It's a position and understanding that the love from Jesus is special. Again, it wasn't about John's position or his understanding. It was about being spellbound by the love he received from Jesus. I feel like sometimes we lose sight of that. We can sing songs about Jesus loving us. We can hear sermons about Jesus loving us. But we take for granted the reality that Jesus loves us. The God himself is enough loves us enough to sacrifice himself for us. That we didn't deserve it. That we didn't earn it. Yet he did it anyway. Thinking about our salvation more than wanting, he was thinking about our salvation more than wanting to save his own life. We need to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. We need to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. We don't need to take it for granted. That's what John is saying here. This one, he loved me. The God of the universe who came down in flesh loves me. And John is writing his gospel after the crucifixion and after the resurrection and is still spellbound by the fact that Jesus loves him. Now at this dinner, John's sitting next to Jesus and they were all enjoying a meal until Jesus dropped that gem about somebody betraying him. And Peter, oh Peter, he wanted answers. Of course he did, right? So he motioned for John to ask about it. He's like, John, figure it out for me. So John leans back and asks the Lord, who is it? And in verse 26, Jesus replied, he's the one I give a piece of bread to, or a piece of bread to after I have dipped it. 
And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate a piece of bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that you should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. This is the darkest night in all of history. Jesus' response to John was that the one that he gives the dipped piece of bread to is going to be the betrayer. Jesus then dips the bread into the cup and gives it to Judas. I want to make a couple of observations here. One, the giving of the piece of bread, or the morsel in some translations, is an intensely intimate and honorable gesture. Now this isn't a perfect example, but I want you to think about it like this. One of my favorite memories growing up was when my mom would make a dessert, right? Whether it be cookies or a cake or brownies. <laughs> Thinking about it, I can still taste it today. After she put the batter in the pan or scooped the cookies out, she would give us the spoon or the spatula to lick, right? She would give us the spoon or the spatula. And back in those days, we weren't really worried about getting sick. We wanted that sweet, sweet batter. We wanted to taste that sweetness. But she wouldn't just give it to anyone, right? She wouldn't just give it to anyone. It was a sign of love and kindness that she would hand that to us. This is a similar thing that's happening here. Jesus is extending a per persistent kindness, grace, and love toward Jesus or Judas, knowing that he is going to be the one that betrayed him. It's a great honor for the host of dinner, that being Jesus, to serve a guest dinner in this way. Let's not miss this. Jesus' love, grace, and kindness towards Judas never wavers. Get that. Jesus' love, grace, and kindness towards Judas never wavers. Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1 tells us this. He loved him to the very end. I want you to see this too. Judas had to be close to Jesus as well. He had to be sitting near him for him to dip it and give it to him. He was probably sitting on the other side of Jesus from John, a place of honor. So one side we have the disciple that Jesus loved, and on the other side we have the disciple that would betray Jesus. And both of them are receiving honor. They're receiving grace. They're receiving kindness. They're receiving love. And he gives that bread to Judas as an act of love. But after G Judas took that bread and he ate it, the time had come. John tells us that Satan had entered into him. And some people have suggested that this is some mystical or magical element to the bread that caused Satan to enter into him. But that's not really what's happening here. It's simply that it's time to get the ball rolling. It's time for Jesus to die. And it's the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted. There's no turning back for Judas now. He had hardened his heart so much towards Jesus' kindness, grace, and love that he had to do what he had to do. This is the key. Judas couldn't do what, Je Judas couldn't do what he had set in his heart to do without Jesus' permission. Jesus had to grant Judas permission to do what he had already set in his heart to do. It wasn't until Jesus tells Judas what you're going to do, do it quickly, that Judas is able to leave and do it. Judas' betrayal doesn't derail the mission of Jesus either. In fact, Jesus is sovereign over all the events in his life. He isn't surprised or in shock at what is going to happen. He knows. He knows that the reason he came to earth was to die. What Satan thought he was accomplishing was only possible because Jesus gave him permission. That's the God that we serve. That he's never surprised. He's never overwhelmed. He's never caught off guard. He is completely in control. 
Jesus knew the circumstances of his life and the events that lay ahead of him. And guess what? He knows the circumstances of your life too. He knows what lies ahead of you too. He is there to extend kindness, love, and grace to you in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your difficulty. In the darkest of nights, Jesus still loves you. He still cares about you, and he will see you through. Our God is much bigger than our situations. He knows all, and he sees all. And when things go wrong in your life, when painful events occur, he wants to comfort you. He wants you to remember his love for you. He wants you to remember that he knows what it's like to face the darkest of nights. This night is a dark night for Jesus and his followers. Judas gets up and he leaves the table. He leaves dinner and the other disciples are confused by what's going on. Obviously, they didn't hear Jesus tell John or they would have known that Judas was a betrayer, but Jesus and John were so close that they didn't hear. They simply thought that Judas was going off to buy something for the feast, that he was going to give some money to the poor. But what he was going to do was going to change their lives forever. He had evil intentions. He had a wicked heart. And John helps us to understand that by telling us one last thing. It was night. It was night when Judas left. Darkness and night in John's gospel usually represent evil and sin. He isn't simply telling us that it's nighttime. He's telling us that something evil is at hand. He's preparing us to see the wickedness that lies ahead. He's revealing to us the darkness in Judas's heart. But Jesus knows there's no time to waste. He needs to prepare his disciples for what's coming. So after Judas leaves, Jesus begins to teach his followers. And so in verse 31, we see this. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and, is glor- and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I had told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In this short little section of Scripture, Jesus is talking about glory and love. Jesus leads into a teaching about the glory of God, and we spent several weeks talking about the glory of God, but what I want you to notice here is that God is going to be glorified through the sacrifice of the Son. God is going to be made known more through the sacrifice of the Son, that God the Father and Jesus the Son are going to share glory in Jesus' sacrifice. The glory is going to come through the cross, through his death. It is through the suffering that Jesus is glorified. It is also through Jesus' suffering that God is glorified. Remember, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to love him forever. And through Jesus' sacrifice, God is glorified. But then Jesus tells his disciple that he's about to leave. And he uses this interesting phrase, little children. He's not using it to demean them or to belittle them. He He calls them little children out of an act of compassion and love. Jesus feels deeply for his disciples. He loves his disciples deeply, those he calls his own. And he wants the disciples to understand that love. So like a father talking to his children, little children, listen to me. He speaks in a fatherly way. He's about to leave and go somewhere. His friends and followers cannot go with him. He's repeating what he told the Jewish leaders in chapter 8. And since they can't go with him, he's going to provide them with instructions when he leaves. What are those instructions? Verse 34, 
I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Things are about to get difficult for those who love Jesus. And what does he tell them? When things get difficult, love one another. Continue in the love that you have received. Love one another as I have loved you. One of the things that Jesus is doing here is creating a new community founded on the rule of love. The rule of love for one another. The boundaries by which the followers of Jesus will be known is through their love for one another. That they abound in love, that they demonstrate love, that they especially demonstrate love to one another. They're to love one another because they have been loved by the Father. John even repeats this in one of his letters later on. In 1 John 3.11, he says this, For this is a message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. What does Jesus mean when he tells us that we are to love one another? He means that we should be willing to lay down our lives for the benefit of someone else. That we are to live lives of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. How many Christians do you know actually demonstrate that type of love? How many congregations are marked by their love for one another? Because if we're honest with one another, loving someone can be difficult. There are those even in our churches that are at times difficult to love. But Jesus doesn't give a caveat when it comes to loving one another. He says the command he gives us is to love one another. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's not a proposal. It's a command. I command you, love one another. Those who follow Jesus are marked by a love for one another. And when we lose our perspective on loving one another, we lose our purpose. Think about it this way. Those outside of the church should look at the church and the way that we love one another and know that we love Jesus. But many of our churches are full of angry and unloving people, full of people whose number one concern isn't love for a brother or a sister. Rather, they are concerned with their own comfort. They're concerned with the style of music we sing. They're concerned with the color of the carpet or if we should have the drapes open or shut. They're concerned with everything else except for love for one another. Our chief concern should be love for God and love for one another. If we know that someone is sick or hurting in our congregation, we should be the first to bend over backwards to make sure that they know that they are loved by us. Our concern as a body of believers should always be to take care of our own. We should lay aside our selfishness and take up the mantle of service. We should be washing one another's feet in humility, service, and love. Loving one another out of a devotion for one another because of Jesus' devotion to us. Why? Because Jesus did this exact same thing for us. He wants us to love one another with the same love that he loved us with. A love of self-sacrifice, not selfishness. And here's a warning for those who don't love one another. If you don't love one another, you probably don't belong to Jesus. Or, at the very least, you have taken your eyes off of him. He has commanded that we love one another. We are saved by the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and that love is what binds us together. That love is what makes us brothers and sisters. We cannot rightly love Jesus if we don't love those Jesus loves. So how are you doing? Do you have hatred in your heart for a fellow believer? Do you hold on to bitterness? Have you been unable to forgive somebody who's hurt you? 
Or are you willing to sacrifice for your brother and sister in Jesus? Think about it. Answer it honestly. How do we do? Are we loving like Jesus commands us to love? So Jesus has given his first command to this new community that he's building. He's building this new community of believers. But Peter is still hung up on one thing. (laughs) Peter. He shows us just who we are, right? So he asks him this question. Verse 36, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The big message in this, these few verses is that only one can go. Peter is being bold here. He wants to know where Jesus is going, why he is spending all this time getting them ready for his departure. And Peter is dead set on following Jesus. He wants to lay down his life for Jesus. He wants to fight beside Jesus. He wants to go where Jesus is going. But Jesus tells him that you can't go where I'm going. Only Jesus can go to the cross to accomplish what needs to be done. Only Jesus can be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus can lay down his life and take it back up again. No matter how, Peter, how much Peter thinks he's ready, he could never be the one who the world would be saved through. This is a sober reality and reminder for all of us. No matter how good you are, no matter how many rules you follow, no matter how often you attend church or give money to charity, you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for your sins. You can never be good enough to make yourself right with God. No matter how prepared or ready you think you are, you will always fall short. Jesus knows that. And that's why he came, to provide a way so that you could be saved. You see, Peter is so gung-ho about his zeal for Jesus that he won't take no for an answer. So Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times. There's going to be a time where things are going to get hard. And the zeal and fervor that Peter has will be stripped away. And he will deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. You see, much like Judas, Peter is going to betray Jesus. He's going to deny him three times. But unlike Judas, Peter is going to be restored. Peter is going to be restored into a loving relationship with God. Why? Because of of his belief in Jesus. You see, Judas didn't believe. Peter did. Judas's betrayal led to his separation from God, not because of his sin, but because of his unbelief. Peter's betrayal was forgiven by God because of his belief in Jesus. That's the essence of John's gospel. Do you believe or do you not believe? Will you believe? So where are you at this morning? Do you trust and believe him or do you deny him? Do you reject him? Do you live in rebellion? Do you submit to his authority? Do you submit to his grace? Or are you still living in rebellion against him? He wants to know you. He wants to love you. Give him your life and experience the goodness and grace of God. Will you believe? Will you not believe? Will you be restored? Or will you enter into condemnation? That's what John's getting at here. That's what Jesus is saying. Believe in me. Trust in me. And you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. 
And if there's anybody here who doesn't believe in you, Lord, I pray that they would submit to you, that they would give their lives over to you. Lord, thank you for the cross, that it is only with the only way that we can be saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up and sing some songs. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.